Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 76. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on June 13th, 2022, in a secure, undisclosed location in Denver, Colorado. I came up here yesterday to visit my beloved daughter and to attend the meeting of the Heterodox Academy, an organization devoted to heterodox thinking on America's campuses. It's a great outfit. You should check it out. Anyway, I had to schlep my microphone up here because I didn't get this recorded before I left. So I'm sitting in a hotel room. There's an air handler. There's all kinds of stuff going on. I hope it's going to end up sounding okay. If you are new to the podcast... We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. Every now and then we get a wild hair on and mix things up around here. So notwithstanding the admonition of Anthony from Seattle to put all the like and share stuff at the end, I'm going to move it up front occasionally. We hope you enjoy listening to the History of the Americans podcast as much as we enjoy making it and that you tell all your friends Spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice. Write us a nice review on Apple. That actually really helps get the word out, algorithms being what they are. And subscribe in your favorite podcast app. To stay up to date on announcements and other interesting stuff that doesn't make it into a podcast episode, you can follow me on Twitter and on the Facebook page for the podcast. This is, after all, a labor of love. And your support is very motivating. And, of course, you can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. I hope that wasn't too traumatizing for any of you, and especially not Anthony from Seattle. The good news is that we won't have to go through all of that at the end Okay, so I'm going to be in New Orleans with a free evening on Wednesday, June 15th. Assuming I actually get this podcast out in time, this will be useful notice of that. I know there are at least a few regular listeners in the Crescent City. We've had more than a thousand downloads there, and I'd be delighted to do a meetup, probably in or near the quarter, if there is interest. Send me an email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com or through the contact page of the website or by direct message on Twitter or Facebook if you're interested. That's Wednesday, June 15th. That's my free evening. Not a lot of notice this time. Please include your email address so I can easily send details on the location, assuming anyone or enough people are interested. Over the last six months, we've devoted at least six episodes to the exploration and thus far failed settlement of the coast of New England and the maritime provinces of Canada during the first two decades of the 1600s. And yet I don't feel as though I have set the scene coherently. The first part of this episode will try to do that, and then we will look at one of the decisive moments in early colonial America, the kidnapping, survival, and repatriation of Tisquantum, who most of us... <coughs> Older Americans knew as Squanto. Europeans had been visiting the coast of New England and the maritime provinces since the early 1500s. Long-standing and extremely attentive listeners will remember that the Abenaki tribe on the coast of Maine was well aware of Europeans when Giovanni de Verrazzano explored that coast for France in 1524. French 
Breton, Basque, English, Spanish, and Portuguese entrepreneurs fished the Outer Banks of Newfoundland and worked their way down the coast trading with Indians as they went, decades before there would be any European attempt to settle in the region. Quite apart from the sponsored voyages of exploration and colonization with surviving narratives, Gosnold, Prang, Weymouth, Champlain, Smith, all those guys, it's difficult to overstate the extent of the routine commercial mingling between Northern Europeans and Indians along the coast of New England and Acadia. Europeans would trade for furs, and Indians would trade for metal tools and even sailboats and clothing. There was this encounter from the Gosnall voyage in 1602, well before the first persisting European settlement anywhere on the Atlantic coast north of St. Augustine, which we recounted back in the first episode on the Popham colony. Quote, But on Friday the 14th of May, early in the morning, we made the land, being full of fair trees, a land somewhat low, certain hummocks or hills lying into the land, the shore full of white sand, but very stony or rocky, and standing fair alongst by the shore, about twelve of the clock of the same day, we came to an anchor where eight Indians in a Basque shallop with mast and sail and iron grapple and a kettle of copper came boldly toward us, one of them apparelled with a waistcoat and breeches of black serge made after our sea fashion, hose and shoes on his feet, All the rest, saving one that had a pair of breeches of blue cloth, were naked. Back to me. Some tribes remained aloof, perhaps leaving trade goods that Europeans would replace with their own. Many would engage personally with Europeans, and some Indians learned at least pidgin versions of European languages, and vice versa. These interactions would have necessarily created vast reservoirs of useful information in both Indian and indigenous communities about the other, only a small amount of which comes down to us through the works of prolific writers such as Samuel de Champlain or John Smith. Let's revisit how David Hackett Fisher described the dynamic, quote, Every year, even during the worst of the religious wars, hundreds of French fishing vessels made summer voyages from Dieppe Saint-Malo, Enfleur, La Havre, La Rochelle, and many other ports. These fishermen worked along the coasts of America from Labrador to Nantucket. They arrived in late spring, stayed a few months, and sailed home in late summer before the autumn storms on the North Atlantic. A few wintered among the Indians, and not always by choice. In 1602, a crew from Enfleur found three fishermen on the St. Lawrence Valley who had been marooned by a skipper from Saint-Malo. Others chose freely to live among the Indians, learn their ways, and form unions with native women. These French seamen gained much knowledge of America. Some of Champlain's best sources were Basque whalers and fishermen, French Basques and Spanish Basques, as he called them. Their whaling stations dotted the American coast from Labrador to the Gulf of Maine for many years. They developed the technology of whale hunting and invented the light and graceful whale boats that would be used for many centuries. 
Later, Champlain got to know a Basque named Captain Savalette, a fine old seaman who hailed from the French port of Saint-Jean-de-Loup. They first met in 1607 on Savalette's 42nd voyage to North America. He had been making annual Atlantic crossings for many years, 83 of them since 1565, before Champlain was born. Captain Savalette and his crew of 16 men worked near Conzo in what is now Nova Scotia, operating out of a little fishing cove that Champlain later named in his honor. The work was perilous but highly profitable. In a good year, they took home 100,000 big cod, which brought as many as five crowns apiece on the Paris market. Through the 1500s, the Basques also traded with Indians who wanted iron pots, copper pans, steel knives, metal arrowheads, and woolen textiles, such as red blankets from Catalonia. In return, the Basques wanted furs. So strong was the European demand that the rate of exchange for a fine beaver pelt rose from one knife to 80 knives, 8-0, in the course of Captain Savalette's career. Europeans also traded for products of the forest. Sassafras was valued as a medicinal tea and ginseng as a sexual restorative. By 1600, Native Americans had become aggressive entrepreneurs. Some Indians got the jump on competitors by acquiring European shallops and meeting European vessels at sea. A complex web of cultural relations had developed between Europeans and American Indians long before Champlain came to the New World. The northern coast acquired a unique trading language, a pidgin speech borrowed from many tongues. Much of it was Basque and Algonquin, A startling example is the word Iroquois. Linguists conclude that it was a complex coinage in the pidgin speech of the North American coast, a French understanding of an Algonquin version of two Basque words that meant killer people. The term was well established when Champlain became the first to publish it in 1603. Back to me. Long-standing and attentive listeners will remember much of this from various episodes in the last six months. Apart from being interesting in and of itself, there are several important points that I take from learning about the routine commercial interactions along the northern Atlantic coast, and they inform how I think about the much later colonization of the region. First, by the early 1600s, the Indians and the Europeans knew a lot more about each other by informal means than we can possibly detect in surviving documents, even from such involved narratives as those by Champlain and Smith. Among the things they knew were at least parts of the other's languages. Recall just one extraordinary example of many. Matuta Costa, the black African who spoke, quote, the languages of Acadia, and accompanied Champlain on his voyage of 1604. The Costa might have been rare on that coast insofar as he was black and from Africa, but there were many people who had learned at least basic commercial speech in the languages of the opposite hemisphere. The era of first contact encounters was over long before Northern Europeans were trying to colonize the region. In this regard, the mapping expeditions of Champlain and Smith probably just captured knowledge that was already embedded in the European fishing and trading fleets. But Champlain and Smith were literate. 
and manifestly artistic people, whereas the vast majority of the workaday captains along the coast were simply not capable of writing books and drawing detailed maps, even if they'd been so inclined. Because men like Champlain and Smith were both capable and so inclined, we think of them as having discovered the coastline of the region for Europeans. They made the maps. But they didn't discover the region. They were just the first to write it down, rather than passing it along in oral tradition or informal writings. Second, the area was very busy, and mostly with people who were not English. The French and the Basques were sending hundreds of ships a year to the region. The English, ironically, were behind. As late as 1616, when John Smith wrote his description of New England, he estimated that the English sent only 40 or 50 sail a year to that coast. Maybe he was understating it. As we touched upon in the recent episode on the first pilgrims, part of the English disadvantage was geographical. If you call up a map of the prevailing winds in the Atlantic, you'll quickly see that during the Age of Sail, the French and the Basques, and for that matter, the Spanish and the Portuguese, were much closer in terms of time to the east coast of North America than the English. Not only that, but the weather would turn in the spring a little earlier in those countries than in England. The result was that the French and the Basques got to the coast and were able to trade for furs harvested in the winter hunting ahead of the English. By the time the English showed up, the furs had been well picked over. It's like they always had to go to the clearance sale and buy the wrong size with some minor defects. The English wanted a colony on the coast to get a jump on the French and the Basques. Third, by the early 1600s, there were powerful vested interests in the fishing and fur trading game that did not clearly fall along national boundaries. I did not go into it much in the episodes on Champlain, but French traders and fishermen were always maneuvering to invalidate Champlain's patent to settle in Acadia and on the St. Lawrence and otherwise undercut New France. John Smith blamed Thomas Hunt for undermining Smith's plan for a New England settlement, not only because the nefarious Hunt had enslaved those 27 Indians and thereby infuriated the locals, but also because Smith perceived Hunt as working against the colonial project to protect the vested English fishing interests from local competition. So here we are talking about Thomas Hunt, who was the captain of the bigger ship on John Smith's voyage to New England in 1614, which we covered in the last episode. As even new listeners with impaired attentiveness will recall, Smith had explored the New England coast under the umbrella of a for-profit expedition in search of whales and gold. After flailing about finding neither for weeks, they pivoted to fish and furs. That's what you do, you pivot. Hunt's sailors caught a lot of fish, and Smith traded for more than a thousand pelts before sailing the length of the coast from roughly Bangor to Lower Cape Cod in a small boat with eight or nine sailors. That accomplished, Smith instructed Hunt to stick around a bit and dry the cod, and then head forthwith to Spain, where there was a ready market for it. Smith, a few of the sailors, and the pelts sailed for England. Hunt, however, went on what we lawyers call a frolic and a detour to Patuxet, a village of the Wampanoag tribe, where he lured 20 Indians aboard whom he imprisoned below decks, one of these men was Tisquantum. 
Then Hunt sailed to Nauset, which is essentially the north-south leg of Cape Cod, and captured another seven Wampanoags, whom he also sent down the hatch. In a curious turn of events, the kidnapping and enslaving of Tisquantum would in all likelihood save his life, or at least extend it, for five or six years. I'm tempted to suggest that this is an example of life's little ironies, but it would have taken Tisquantum some years to see it that way if he ever did. We shall return to that. Hunt then sailed to Malaga, Spain, which had an established market in slaves. Indeed, it was the principal port of entry for African captives and, according to Neil Salisbury of Smith College, contained the largest proportion of enslaved peoples on the Iberian Peninsula, which would also mean that it had the largest proportion of enslaved peoples in all of Western Europe. Malaga was definitely the place to sell human cargo. At Malaga, Hunt indeed sold some of the unfortunate 27, each for a sum equivalent to the price of 1,200 pounds of dried fish or two years' wages for a sailor. It was, however, illegal in Spain to enslave Indians, and before Hunt could sell all the captives, some local friars intervened and confiscated the remainder. Tisquantum and some number of his fellow Wampanoags would go live with the friars, no doubt working for their room and board. Everyone had to do that. Tisquantum later demonstrated a great facility for new languages and would have impressed the friars by his quick adoption of Spanish and being no fool, his seemingly ready willingness to learn the ins and outs and what have yous of Catholic Christianity. He also seems already to have known some English, no doubt because of all that trading along the coast of Wampanoag territory. We know this because at some point within 18 months or so of having arrived in Spain, word reached England that a Christian Anglophone native of Norumbega, soon to be renamed New England by John Smith, was in Malaga. Now let's go to the account of Professor Salisbury in his article, Treacherous Waters, Tisquantum, the Red Atlantic, and the Beginnings of Plymouth Colony, quote, among those hearing the news was John Slaney, a wealthy merchant and treasurer of the Newfoundland Company. The company was a major player in the lucrative triangular trade that each September carried North Atlantic fish to Malaga and other Mediterranean ports, from whence its ships transported wine and other commodities to England. Tisquantum sailed for London in fall 1616 as a passenger on an otherwise routine company voyage, and on arriving, moved into Slaney's home. Back to me. The Red Atlantic, from the title of Professor Salisbury's paper, is a term coined by the Cherokee historian Jace Weaver. It refers to the mostly but not entirely Western migrations, forced or free, of indigenous peoples of the Western Hemisphere to Europe, these Indians became cosmopolitans, moving with various degrees of comfort or difficulty between extremely different worlds. The most famous Indian cosmopolitans of the 16-teens are Pocahontas and Tisquantum, but there were many, some of whom we've at least touched upon already. Paquaquinio, who became Don Luis, may or may not have survived as Opacancanaw, to whom we shall return shortly. 
Recall also the five Abenaki Indians captured by George Weymouth on the coast of Maine in 1605. They lived in England for a couple of years, three in the household of that great patron of settlement, Sir Fernando Gorgias. Two of them would return to Maine notionally to support the Popham colony, and both would rejoin their own tribe at the expense of the English once back in America. In 1611, three years before Hunt had snatched the 27, one of Gorgia's ships had captured three Wampanoags from Martha's Vineyard. One of them was a powerful sachem, the Wampanoag term for chief, more or less, named Epineau. Epineau found himself living in Sir Fernando Gorgia's household and made the rounds in London. Epineau was very tall, of charismatic bearing, and started to pick up English with the help of the last of Weymouth's Algonquins in London, an Indian from Maine named Asakumit. Epineau figured out fairly quickly that Gorges was after gold. And sure enough, Epineau was delighted to confirm that there was a lot of it on Martha's Vineyard. Even though Gorges had already been taken in by cosmopolitan Indians, the two sent back to help his Popham colony, his learning curve was flattened by greed. I know what gold does to men's souls. In 1614, roughly three years after arriving in London, Epineau had his ticket back to Martha's Vineyard. Long-standing and attentive listeners will remember that Epineau was far from the first North American to lie about gold to get the Europeans to do something stupid or self-destructive or just what they wanted. Recall the various tribes in Florida that kept sending Hernando de Soto to find gold amongst their enemies, or the Turk, who took the Coronado and Trotta on a wild goose chase deep into Kansas, looking for the seven lost cities of gold. On arriving at Martha's Vineyard, Gorge's captain, one Hobson, invited the locals to come visit. Some of them were of Epineau's family, and though he was under surveillance, he was able to tell them that he was captive and organize a rescue. Shortly thereafter, 20 canoes full of warriors returned to Hobson's ship. Hobson brought Epineau forward to translate, when suddenly the warriors unleashed a massive arrow barrage. Epineau escaped by diving overboard under the covering fire. We are not finished with Epineau, nor with the Wampanoags of Martha's Vineyard, who are not even remotely happy with the English. The next year, 1615, while Tisquantum was learning Spanish from the friars in Malaga, and John Rolfe and Pocahontas were starting a family in Jamestown, Gorgeous sent John Smith and one Thomas Dermer back to New England. Smith would not make it. He got captured by the French and imprisoned in the Azores and eventually escaped. But Dermer ran into a buzzsaw of Wampanoag hostility. There, Dermer learned not only of Thomas Hunt's slaving operation, but also of Epineau. Now it is 1617. Tisquantum has been in John Slaney's household in a posh London neighborhood for the better part of a year. Recall that Slaney was a senior executive of the Newfoundland Company, which had been basing its fishing operations out of a small settlement called Cupid's in Cooper's Cove, southeastern Newfoundland. Cupid's had been founded by the company in 1610, and not only had it survived until 1617, it survives until this very day. Cupid's Newfoundland 
has between six and 700 residents right now, and it is the oldest continuously settled English town in North America. Anyway, the tribes in that region of Newfoundland were very standoffish, so it was difficult to trade with them. Slaney or somebody hit upon the idea that Tisquana might go there and build diplomatic relations with the locals. Never mind that Patuxet, where Tisquantum grew up, is more than 900 miles as the super crow flies from Cupid's, and there was no guarantee he would know the language up in Newfoundland. He was all they had, so off he went. Tisquantum didn't make much progress with the local tribes, which shouldn't be too surprising. But in 1618, and please notice that we have now reached a new high watermark in the history of the Americans, Tisquana met Thomas Dermer, who was working in Newfoundland that year. Dermer had heard of Tisquana from at least his own visit to the Wampanoags in 1615 and wrote to Gorges, suggesting that Tisquana might be just the man they needed to settle the region now known as New England. Salisbury suggests that they might also have talked about the epidemics and ripping up the Wampanoags and other tribes of the Donland, but most other accounts do not say that. Tisquantum does seem to have talked up the wealth of New England, hoping to entice Dermer into taking him there. That Dermer would do, but only after returning to England to get backing from Gorges. Having gotten within a thousand miles of home four years after having been enslaved, Tisquantum went back to England with Dermer, in the hope that he would return. Gorges, twice already bamboozled by cosmopolitan Indians just looking for a ride home, put his faith into Squantum. The most attentive of listeners will recall that Paquiquinio Don Luis had done the same thing, persuading the Jesuits that they should take him to the Chesapeake, His first attempt failed, too, perhaps because there were soldiers along and Don Luis did not want to return to his homeland with them. But Don Luis would go back to Spain and make the case for a second missionary expedition to the Chesapeake, and he would make it home that time. By the spring of 1619, Gorgias sent Dermer and Tisquantum back to New England. They worked their way down the coast of Acadia to Maine and then all the way to Patuxet, Back in the second episode of the podcast, I quoted Charles Mann's book, 1491, which describes that very scene vividly, quote, What Tisquantum saw on his return home was unimaginable. From southern Maine to Narragansett Bay, the coast was empty, utterly void, Dermer reported. What had once been a line of busy communities was now a mass of tumble-down homes and untended fields overrun by blackberries. Scattered among the houses and fields were skeletons bleached by the sun. Slowly, Dermer's crew realized they were sailing along the border of a cemetery 200 miles long and 40 miles deep. Patuxet had been hit with special force. Not a single person remained. Tisquantum's entire social world had vanished. Looking for his kinsfolk, he led Dermer on a melancholy march inland. The settlements they passed lay empty to the sky, but full of untended dead. Who can't but wonder at what Tisquantum must have felt at Patuxet? 
One can imagine his mounting dread as they approached his home, and then his bottomless shock, despite all they had seen up to that point, at actually understanding that his people were gone. And did it occur to him that he had only survived because he'd been enslaved? That would mess with anybody's head. Eventually, Dermer and Tisquantum reached the Pocasset Wampanoag town of Namaskit. Sorry if the pronunciation's blown there. About 15 miles inland from Patuxet. There they met with two local sachems and about 50 men. Tisquantum was able to persuade them of Dermer's peaceful intentions. Then Dermer left Tisquantum to visit Epinau on Martha's Vineyard. The meeting was amicable, and Dermer sailed for the English settlements in Virginia, where Dermer would spend the momentous fall and winter of 1619. Tisquantum would live the next year among surviving Wampanoags. Now let's go to Salisbury's account. Quote, The amicability was gone by the time Dermer returned in summer 1620. During his absence, another English party had massacred some peaceful, quote, Poconockets, probably blew that pronunciation too, so that they now bore an inveterate malice to the English. Dermer doubted that the offenders were English. The French have so possessed them, overlooking the fact that Wampanoags by 1619 had no difficulty distinguishing French from English. Reunited, Tusquantum and Dermer were rudely surprised at Martha's Vineyard, where Dermer had been welcomed the year before. Epinau mockingly recalled deceiving gorges and then led an attack on the visitors, killing or mortally wounding Dermer and most of his crew and seizing Tisquantum. Six years after having been kidnapped by Thomas Hunt, Tisquantum was the captive of another Wampanoag cosmopolitan. Having enabled him to return home, his worldliness was suddenly working against him. Back to me. Dermer took 14 or 15 wounds, but survived in the moment at least, when one of the other English survivors defended him with a sword. The two escaped in the boat to Virginia, where Dermer died either from his wounds or from a disease not long thereafter. Little did either Dermer or Tisquantum know that at that very moment, a small ship named Mayflower had set sail for what would become New York Harbor. Weather and bad luck would force it ashore in New England instead, just at Tisquantum's abandoned village of Patuxet, named Plymouth, on John Smith's map of 1616. There remains one last big question. What was the disease that depopulated the Donland from 1616 to 1619? The most recent paper I have found on the topic is Survival of the Pilgrims, a re-evaluation of the lethal epidemic among the Wampanoag, published by John Boos in the winter 2019 issue of the Historical Journal of Massachusetts. Boos has two paragraphs that summarize most of what we know so far and what we don't know. Quote, Numerous attempts have been made to retrospectively identify the microbiological nature of the epidemic, whether it was the plague or some other specific infectious disease. Yet insufficient data exists to make a specific causal diagnosis. 
In contrast, the epidemiological characteristics of the disease are well-defined and historically critical. The epidemic was remarkably lethal, of limited duration, and geographically focused. In the absence of these characteristics, pilgrim history would likely have evolved very differently. Mortality was extremely high, rising to more than 90% by some estimates. Well, its timing was narrowly confined to the years 1616 and 1619. The epidemic struck during the period immediately preceding the landing of the pilgrims on Cape Cod and the subsequent establishment of the Plymouth Plantation on the site of the abandoned Wampanoag village of Patuxet in December of 1620. The epidemic's location, and in particular the southern boundary, was sharply delimited, reaching only the eastern and northern shores of the Narragansett Bay. The Wampanoag, who resided north and east of the bay, were decimated, while the Narragansett, living south of the bay, were left unscathed. Hence the epidemic put the Wampanoag at the mercy of their traditional rivals, the Narragansett. The reasons for the sharp, almost surgically precise border of the epidemic may be due, in part, to Narragansett cultural beliefs and practices. The remarkable difference in exposure and impact on the two groups is uncontested. As a result, the Wampanoag needed an alliance with the pilgrims to rebalance regional power relationships. Back to me, it's not clear what those differences in cultural beliefs and practices were, but at least three possible explanations have emerged. The first is that the Narragansett were far less involved in trade with the Europeans or other tribes than the Wampanoags of the Donland. That certainly limited their exposure. It has further been suggested, based on one passage in the writings of pilgrim Edward Winslow, that the natural reticence of the Narragansetts might have led their shamans to warn against contact as word of the plague spread. Finally, the Narragansetts had the practice of burning the personal effects of people who died. If the disease in question were passed by fomites, a term I trust we have all learned in the last two years, burning the possessions of the dead might have prevented transmission. Regardless, we can all rejoice in the survival, at least for a time, of the Narragansetts. That's my beer. That's my beer. That's my beer. That's my beer. Narragansett, that's my beer. That's my beer. If not for the strange workings of an epidemic 400 years ago, I'm going to say it is improbable that a bunch of German Americans in 1890 would have named their beer after the Narragansetts. There never was, after all, a Wampanoag beer. Thank you again for listening. It's 1620 and the pilgrims are on their way. Before we get back to Patuxet slash Plymouth, however, we will return to Jamestown to see what happened in that fateful year of 1619. Until next time. <laughs>